Well, good morning. Thank you for the warm welcome. I would just love to just pray for us before we start. Uh, So let me pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. We thank you for your presence with us. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would speak to us now as we look at your word. We pray that we'd see Jesus for who he really is. And I pray that we'd be changed as a result. In your glorious name, amen. Well, growing up, I was uh, known as a hopeless romantic. Over the years, I tried out many romantic ideas, and they all seemed to go horribly wrong. As I got older, things didn't seem to improve. A typical example of this was when I proposed to my beautiful wife, Amy. Now, there's so much pressure on guys, isn't there, to think up and plan like an amazing proposal, and so I felt the pressure to do something special. And so here's what I did. Uh, Me and Amy met and started dating in Oxford. Oxford was a place where we enjoyed our first date and built up a load of good memories together. And so what I decided to do was to create my very own special treasure hunt that would take her around Oxford. So what I did was I printed off a nice picture of us both. I stuck the picture on cards and I cut the picture up into four pieces, making four pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. I then uh, wrote on one side of the card a little memory that we'd shared, and on the other side, the reverse, was the quarter of the picture uh, that I just printed out and cut out. And what happened was I put them into a nice little wrap box, and I drove around Oxford putting these nicely wrapped boxes into different locations, bars, restaurants, where we'd shared uh, good evenings together. The final location was the church where we had met. And the plan was for her to go on the treasure hunt, follow the different signs, and eventually get to me at the church where I would get down on one knee and propose. In theory, perfect idea, right? You're all sitting there thinking, good job, well done. But it didn't quite go to plan. The church that I had planned to propose at was actually having a funeral that same day. (laughs) But it was okay. I thought, I've planned this out well. As long as she gets there on time... All is going to be well. It didn't work out as planned. Amy took longer than expected, and she only arrived at the church when people were arriving for the funeral. Terrible. It was very messy, and I ended up having to propose to her on the street outside the church, like on the pavement. Terrible. Here's a picture that's going to come up on the screen. This is just after she said yes. Um, But I do want to say that the most important thing was that she did say yes. And here's the sign. Here is the sign that she said yes. Now, the reason I start with that is because signs mean something. Signs point to something deeper. A ring can be a sign that someone's married. Flowers can be a sign of affection. Yawning is a sign of being bored or tired. And even a point of a finger can be a sign. When I grew up, if my dad ever pointed a finger at me, I'd know that it was a sign for me to be quiet and listen up. All right? even, a, even a point can be a sign. Today we are starting our new series called Signs. And commentators say that John's Gospel, which is essentially a biography of Jesus' life, can be split into two books, as it were. Chapters 1 to 12 are known as the Book of Signs. Chapters 13 to 21 are called the Book of Glory. The first 12 chapters record seven signs which lead us to Jesus and his true identity. And chapters 13 to 21 record the week leading up to Jesus' death and also his resurrection appearances. 
You see, when I proposed to Amy, the jigsaw pieces acted as signs that would lead her to me. And in John's gospel, these signs that we see point us to Jesus and his work for us on the cross. We're going to be looking at six signs across the next six weeks. And I can I strongly encourage you to get the devotional booklet that we've produced. It'll cost you two pounds, but it's really, really worth it so that you can engage in John's gospel in your own personal time. Before we get to today's sign, I want to state that it's going to be a great series where we get the opportunity to get up close and personal with this man, Jesus, and see who he really is. In John's gospel, Jesus is an astonishing figure. He taught like no one else taught, and he performed amazing, miraculous signs. In the next few weeks, we're going to see him healing a paralytic. We're going to see him feeding 5,000 people with five loaves and two fish. We're going to see him walking on water. We're going to see him healing a man born blind, and we're going to see him even raising someone from the dead. All these signs point to who Jesus is. In fact, John, who writes this gospel, he states very clearly the reason why he writes in John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31. Have a look at these verses. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is crystal clear, isn't he? Jesus performed many miraculous signs. They couldn't even fit into the Bible. But John writes these specific signs so that we may believe who Jesus is, the saviour of the world, and by believing we may receive life. Hey, given that that is John's aim in writing, what that means for us is that as we look at the miraculous signs, we can't just read them at face value. You can't just read them and say, oh, that's a nice story. Actually, you have to look for the deeper meaning. And in each of these miraculous signs, there is deep, deep meaning hidden within them. So we're going to unravel Jesus turning water into wine. And I'm going to read John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. And we're going to look at this fascinating sign. Here it is. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out, Take it to the master of the banquet. They did so. And the master of the banquet tasted the wine that had been, sorry, tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where he had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, but you have saved the best until now. Verse 11, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. After reading that, I'm sure there's lots of people here who are thinking, I wish that Jesus could turn up at my party. Yeah? I mean, you're there, you run out of wine. Jesus, we run out of wine, and bang, 
He turns water into wine, and there's more wine than you can possibly drink. On the face of it, it's a strange miracle, isn't it? John records that this is the first miracle that Jesus performed, and that leads us to ask the question, why this miracle? Of all the miracles that Jesus could have performed, why this miracle? I think there's something deeper going on here. To have no more wine at a wedding in first century Palestine was a complete and utter disaster. Weddings would last around seven days, and the wine was key. The wine kept the party going. Not much has changed, does it? The wine keeps the party going. And it was the groom's responsibility, along with his family, to make sure there was enough wine to last the whole wedding reception, the whole week. And remember that we're looking at an honor and shame culture. So people would have felt the pressure to fulfill the social expectations put on them. To have no more wine at a wedding was a huge social no-no. You'd be disgraced, full of shame. How can you run out of wine? So you can imagine the groom and his family, can't you? They realize that the wine has run out. I wonder what they're thinking. We have no way of knowing whether the wine ran out on the first day of the wedding reception or maybe halfway through. We just have no way of knowing. But I'm sure they're feeling anxious. I can imagine them thinking, what will our guests think? How will they view our family? Will they think that we're cheap and stingy? I'm sure the groom must have been thinking, our family will never live this down. What shame, what embarrassment. Then this man, Jesus, finds out, and it's incredible, isn't it? Look at how much wine he produces. I've done some thinking. Six jars, it says, held 20 to 30 gallons. So say if we imagine that each of the jars held 25 gallons, that means that Jesus produced nearly 700 litres of wine, which equates to roughly 950 bottles of wine. 950 bottles of wine at a party to keep it going. And notice that Jesus does all the work, all the work, and the groom takes the credit. Isn't that what it says in verse 10? The bridegroom gets pulled aside. The master of the banquet says to him, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you the groom, you've produced all this wine. Thank you very much. Thank you very much that you've saved the best till now. I wonder what the groom would have been thinking. What would you do? Would you confess that actually you ran out of wine? Or would you just let it go by? I'm sure the groom hid his shame and kept quiet, taking the credit for what Jesus had done. Do you know that Jesus removes all of our shame? Just a few weeks ago, our nation went through quite possibly the most embarrassing day of our history. I'm sure you were watching it, and I'm sure perhaps you wish you hadn't watched it. But what shame, what embarrassment. I mean, we'd lost to Iceland. Iceland! Iceland! Our football team, heralded as the best football nation. We lost to a country with no professional leagues. We lost to a country with a population only slightly bigger than the Lewisham Borough. We lost to a load of part-time players, and we lost to a manager who also works as a dentist. Embarrassing. Roy Hodgson and the boys must wish that someone could come along and remove their shame. But they can't. The result is in the record books. It can't be deleted. 
I wonder what about you? What about the shame perhaps that you feel? Is there something that you wish was deleted from the record books? Imagine for a second two young people who grew up in a church somewhere in England. Let's call one Mark and one Sophie, and both of them were good friends. As a teenager, Mark attended church every week, had many good friends, but what a lot of people don't know is that Mark started drinking alcohol at 16 under the influence of his dad, who was also an alcoholic. Mark very quickly became addicted to alcohol. It started off just small, just one a week, but it gradually got more and more. When Mark hit 18, he was drinking every night. And not just one or two drinks, but he was drinking heavily every night. Of course, he couldn't tell anyone at church. How could he? What shame, what embarrassment. He didn't tell anyone. And in his late 20s, he was diagnosed with a severe case of liver disease. Let's think about Sophie for a second. Sophie, on the other hand, well, she became more and more active in the church, and uh, she kept doing that into her early 20s. She was a godly girl. She took active lead in the church. She led a small group. And outwardly, Sophie looked like she had it all together. She had a good job. She was popular. And people knew her as a God-fearing woman. But behind the scenes... Sophie was addicted to pornography. She was exposed to it at an early age, and in her early 20s, she became addicted. But she couldn't tell anyone. How could she tell someone? Society tells us that this is a problem only for men and not for women. So she was worried that she'd be labelled a weirdo. She felt guilt and shame and condemnation until one day she told a female leader in the church... Sophie was amazed at the love and care that she received. She got help. And after a few years, she was totally freed from her pornography addiction. Sophie was reminded again and again that Jesus does the work of removing our shame and our guilt. Those were two different people, two different stories. One came to Jesus and asked him to remove her shame, and one didn't. I wonder, what type of person will you be? Will you come to Jesus and ask him to remove your shame? Or will you try and hide it? Now you might well be thinking, how does Jesus remove our shame? How does he do it? It's all well and good saying Jesus removes our shame, but how does he do it? Well, let's have a look at John chapter 2. And in verse 4, Jesus says, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, we can read this, can't we? And we can think, Jesus, you're just being really rude, aren't you? How can you talk to your mum like that? But actually, what's intended here is no rudeness at all. Actually, in John's Gospel, we see Jesus use the term woman quite frequently. And in each moment, it's in the context of affection. So I don't think there's rudeness intended here. But what's important is what he says next. My hour has not yet come. By hour or time, Jesus is referring to the hour of his death where he will die on the cross for us. So what's going on here? Jesus' mother says to him, we've got no more wine. And he replies, sorry, mum, it's not time for me to die yet. It's slightly strange, isn't it? Really strange. Well, think about it this way. Jesus is a single guy at a wedding. And if you're a single person in the room, and you happen to be at someone else's wedding, the chances are that at some point or another you're going to start to think about your own wedding, aren't you? 
Isn't that natural? However painful it may be, you're at someone else's wedding and you start to think about what your wedding might be like. And it's the same with Jesus. He's a single guy at a wedding and his mind is starting to think about his own wedding in the future. His mother asks him about the present wedding that they're at, but he's thinking about the future wedding that he's going to have. And the thing with Jesus is that in order for him to get to that wedding in the future, he has to die first. And of course, when he's thinking about that, he's thinking about the pain that he's going to have to go through to have his own wedding. He knows the suffering, the intense hardship and pain that he's going to feel in order to shed his blood for his bride. Perhaps at first he doesn't want to get involved in the miracle. Perhaps he's like, Mum, don't involve me just yet. Because I know that if I do this, it's going to start my public ministry, and that leads to only one place. That leads to the cross where I'm going to die. That's my hour. That's why I've come. So why does Jesus go ahead and perform this miracle anyway? Why? Because he knows why he came. He knows his mission. He knows his call. He came to provide a way for all of us, all of us, to be at the wedding feast of Jesus. We see in the book of Revelation that Jesus will return one day, there's going to be a new creation, and there's going to be a wedding. Revelation 19 verse 7 says, Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb, that's Jesus, has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Two verses later in verse 9, it says, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Jesus is going to have a wedding. And the way he provides for us is by shedding his blood on the cross so that we can be at the feast. By going on to turn water into wine, he's also fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. There's an amazing passage in Isaiah 25, verse 6 to 9. I'm going to read it now. If you want to look at it in your own time, go ahead. Isaiah 25, verse 6 to 9 says this. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. Get this. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. Surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord, we trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in our salvation. Isn't that amazing? Jesus is performing a miracle that fulfills Old Testament prophecy, but also gives us a sign to the future. All those who trust in him will be at the wedding feast of the Lamb. There's also an amazing sign in verse 6 in John chapter 2. And this helps us to understand in even greater, in greater depth the importance of what he's about to do. It says in verse 6, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, you can easily read that, can't you, and just skip over it, get to the next verse, let's see what's going on. But it's important that we don't miss this. You see, the Old Testament Jewish law stated that people couldn't approach a holy God or be involved in the community of believers unless they were clean Now, the priests, they would go around and they would declare what is clean and unclean. And cleanliness was a sign of holiness. But people were made unclean for a variety of different things. Like touching uh, unclean animals or creatures. 
touching another human who was unclean, or touching an object that was unclean. All of that would make you unclean. You can read about it in Leviticus. And if you were unclean, you were seen as someone who, was, who had sinned, and you were literally cast out from the community of believers. And the only way you could come back in was if you confessed your sin, you went through the ritual of ceremonial washing, which include washing your clothes and your whole body, and then you needed to offer an animal sacrifice to make up for your sin. Only once you'd gone through that whole process of ceremonial washing, offering an animal sacrifice, then you were allowed back into God's people. Why does this matter? Why does this matter for us in the 21st century? Why? Because the book of Leviticus teaches us about God's holiness and also that cleaning the external doesn't deal with the internal. Cleaning the external doesn't deal with the internal. Can we say that all together after me? Cleaning the external doesn't deal with the internal. Can we say that again? Cleaning the external doesn't deal with the internal. That's what it teaches us. Jesus said himself, it's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. Rather, it's what comes out of a man that makes him unclean. For it's within our hearts that comes evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, greed, and so on. It's what comes from within that makes us unclean. Then in the book of Hebrews, it says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated year after year, make perfect those who come to worship. Then it says, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What Jesus and what Hebrews is saying is that ceremonial washing, animal sacrifices, they don't take away our sin problem. The only thing that can take away our sin and our shame is the perfect blood of Jesus shed on the cross for us. Think about it. Think about it for a second. Why does Jesus turn water that is usually used for ceremonial washing into wine? And not just wine, but the best wine. What does wine represent in the New Testament? Jesus' blood. Water can cleanse them. Jesus' blood can cleanse them because sinful people need cleansing and the old way of doing things was not doing the job. The Jewish people were constantly reminded of their failure. They were constantly reminded that they were unclean. They'd be unclean, unclean, unclean. And being washed would only deal with it for a short period of time. They needed something permanent. I wonder whether there's many of us here, I think there's many of us here, who know the feeling of constant failure, constant trying to live up to righteousness, constantly trying to do good things, but constantly knowing the burden of failure. Some of you will be here, and perhaps you're addicted to various things. Perhaps you're here, and you're addicted to alcohol. Maybe you're addicted to pornography. Maybe you're addicted to gambling, or food, or the internet, or even addicted to your job. We all carry around lots of addictions, don't we? I wonder whether you've tried to break free, but you can't. You can't break free in your own efforts. That's perhaps your experience. And just like the groom at this wedding, we need to confess that we've run out. We've run out. I can't do any more. You need to confess that you've run out. Do you know that Jesus can remove your shame? 
says in Hebrews 10, verse 10, we have all been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. If you're here and you're feeling unclean, if you're here and you're feeling dirty and ashamed, washing the external is not going to help. It's not going to help. The only way you can be cleansed is by coming to put your faith in Jesus. Before we finish today, we're going to have a time where we can come, confess our sin and our shame to Jesus, and have him cleanse us. We're going to do that, and we're also going to break bread together, remembering Jesus' body broken for us and Jesus' blood shed for us. But before we get there, I've just got a a few more comments that I'd love to share. Jesus not only removes our shame, but he leads us to joy. The groom in chapter 2 of John went through a sense of shame, having run out of wine, but then rejoicing in the fact that 950 bottles, 950, were then presented at his wedding banquet. What joy, what fun. And my, my fear is that I often hear people say, I reject Christianity because I want to have fun. Or I reject Christianity because it's a straitjacket which stops me from living my life. Isn't that what people say? And if you're here today and you hold that position, I want to say to you that I'm afraid you don't know the Jesus who you're rejecting. And you don't know the Christianity that you're rejecting. Because faith in Jesus leads us to the most fulfilling life. It leads us to the most joyous life you could ever dream possible. That's not to say that everything will be easy, by no means. But Jesus leads us to real life. John chapter 2 verse 11 says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and the disciples believed in him. It was the first sign revealed what Jesus came to do and his disciples believed in him. They started their journey and they received life. That's what John chapter 20 says. They receive life. You know, if you want to be a disciple, you need to understand that real joy comes from believing in the real Jesus. Also, if you want to become a disciple, you need to take note. Take note of what Jesus says in verse 5. Jesus' mother turns to the servants and he says to them, do whatever he tells you. Make note of that. Isn't that a great phrase? If you're a disciple here, you want to follow Jesus, this call is the same for us, isn't it? Do whatever he tells you to. The disciples believed, they followed, they received life. My fear is that some of us here think that real life is all about success in our career, getting more likes on Facebook, getting more followers on Twitter, getting more money, maybe falling in love. Those things can be good of themselves, but they don't give you real life. As I said, believing in the real Jesus brings real life. Life that's lasting, life that's eternal, life that's full of forgiveness, life that lasts beyond death. The real Jesus brings real life. As I was preparing today, I felt that this was an important message for some people here. Some of you may feel burdened by a sense of shame and guilt and sin. Some of you may have addictions that you just want to be free from. And all you need to do is come to Jesus in a moment and say, I'm all out. I've run out. And I need you to step in. And as the groom just ran out, Jesus steps in and he gets the credit. You know, when you come to Jesus and you say, I'm all out, Jesus stepped in for you on the cross. And you know what he does? He gives you credit. He gives you credit. 
You've, you've sinned, you've fallen short. Jesus steps in for you on the cross. He rose again and he gives us his righteousness. So by coming to him today, you could be credited righteousness. You can be wiped clean. You can have a fresh start. If you come to him today and you say, I've run out. Can I invite the band up? As the band are coming, just one final thing to reflect on is that, of course, when we read the Bible, we can skip over so much, can't we? And as I was preparing, you, you, know, you start to notice, don't you, various things in the passage. And one thing that I'd love just for you to note is that in verse 1 of chapter 2, it says, on the third day. On the third day, this miracle took place. And don't we know in the Bible that the third day has significance? It was on the third day that Jesus rose from the grave and received life, eternal life. Do you know that today could be a third day for you? Today could be your third day where you come forward, you come to Jesus, and you get life. Will this be your third day where things change? The band are going to play for a moment in the background. I'd love for you just to take a moment on your own. Perhaps close your eyes, perhaps bow your head. And I'd love for you just to come to Jesus now. There's several steps that you can make. The first step is just admitting to yourself that you need help. Admitting to yourself maybe that you've got an addiction. Maybe that, you know, you've got a sin or shame or a burden. It's about admitting it to yourself first. Then come to God and admit it to him. And then maybe after this service or this week, you may want to admit it to someone else. But as the band play, can you come now and just firstly admit it to yourself? Name it. Name it even. Name the sin or shame or addiction that you've got. Name it in your heart. And then admit it to God and ask him for forgiveness. Ask him to fill you with his Holy Spirit. Ask him to change your life around. Let's let the Holy Spirit come and speak to us now. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your goodness to us. We're so thankful for Jesus Christ who stepped in for us so that we can get the credit. We're so sorry, so sorry that we've fallen short. We're so sorry that we've run out. We're so sorry for our sin and our shame and our addictions. We're so sorry that we've lived a life perhaps that you didn't intend for us. We ask that you forgive us. We ask that you change us. We ask that you fill us with your Holy Spirit now, enabling us to live a new life. I pray for those now who are, or who have had a sense of shame. And I pray that you come by their side now and comfort them. I pray that you fill them with your Holy Spirit. I pray that you'd help them by your Spirit to live a new life. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. Thank you that you give us real life. And I pray that we'd embrace that real life. Thank you that when we come to you, we get the right to be called children of God. Children not born of natural descent or human decision, but children born of God. 
thank you that we can cry out, Abba, Father. We can be part of your family both now and for eternity. Thank you that by trusting in you, we can be at the wedding feast of the Lamb for eternity. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.